No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, former Oklahoma head coach Bob Stoops discusses how he turned the Sooners around after he took the job in 1999. We had a bad self-image from all those down years, just convincing them that we're working hard enough to expect to win. Coming from Florida, I think I had some credibility of what took to win championships. And look, we're working, you know, that hard. We're talented enough. We should expect to win. Plus, Stoops addresses rumors that Auburn is interested in pursuing him as their next coach. I have no interest ever in a school that already has an established from the day I became a coach to now. That's ridiculous to talk about somebody when they got a good coach who's already doing a good job. So that's not to be talked about with me anyway with coaches. And Lars Anderson explains what makes Alabama's two legendary head coaches, Bear Bryant and Nick Saban, so similar. They both lost their dads at age 46, and I think that infused in both of them a sort of sense of urgency to get things done in their life at a relatively young age. It, it made them very driven because they knew from a very young age just how vulnerable and fragile life is. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to Lars Anderson, the college football writer, about his new book, a dual biography of Bear Bryant and Nick Saban, and his argument that Alabama is the greatest college football program ever. But our first guest joining us now probably has some different thoughts on that subject. He is Bob Stoops, who is the head coach at the University of Oklahoma for 18 years. His new book is No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach, written with our old friend Gene Wojciechowski. Bob, thank you for joining us. Hey, great to be with you, Jeremy. Hope you're well. I'm great. I'm great. And, uh, you know, um, it, the book is a lot of fun, and it tells uh, it tells a lot of stories. I, I think it's been described accurately. It's not not a tell all. It doesn't have to be, but it is it is the story of of your rise to prominence in the game. Uh, growing up in Youngstown, Ohio, one of the cradles of coaches, of course, um, and, and your career at, at Iowa and um, uh, at Kent State, and eventually as the head coach at Oklahoma. Why Why did you want to sit down and write this book now? You're not even yet 16. You're already writing an autobiography. <laughs> well, I, I get asked quite often through the years um, by coaches from all levels and all different sports, as well as even business people, how did this happen for me? How did I, you know, become the head coach at Oklahoma? And, and you know, I can't in a five-minute conversation, it's impossible to tell all of this, how this whole journey happened and how, you know, how, how it – also I get asked all the time, uh, how did we turn Oklahoma around so fast after so many years without a championship of any kind to, you know, to, to winning the national championship in our second year and then keeping it so consistent with, you know, competing for three more national championships and winning all the big – 12 championships we have how did we keep it so consistent so anyway there's a lot of stories just how we built up the early teams who had a really poor self-image to showing them all those great players and great teams and we always hammered it into their head that this is who you're supposed to be and there's no excuses for us not to be this kind of team 
or a, be a great player. And to me, to be a great coach, I go, I'm supposed to coach like Barry Switzer, and, and, and there's no excuses for me not to. So anyway, they're just sort of details how we did things. We're speaking with Bob Stoops about his new book, No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach, written with Gene Wojciechowski. And, and the stuff, um, a lot of the stuff I find interesting is about growing up in Youngstown, which is, you know, one of these um, uh, American uh, industrial towns so closely associated with the game of football and, of course, the sport of boxing as well. You're just a few months older, I think, than Ray Mancini, Boom Boom. Um Ernie Shaver, there's a long history, even more recently, Kelly Pavlik, great fighters coming out of there, great football coaches. What was it like growing up in Youngstown in the 60s and early 70s? Yeah, it was a, it's a tough town, still mill town, and uh, heck, we uh, we did everything, man. We grew up in neighborhoods where you had a gang of guys, and we'd take our gang over to three streets over, and, you know, we'd play their gang of guys and tackle football and or you know, basketball, whatever it was, shoot, it was buddies of mine, we would, they'd rope off part of a basement and we'd have fights, you know, we'd box three, three rounds. And, uh, I know someone asked me, did boom, boom ever get in those fights? He said, heck no, he, nobody fight Ray. Nobody was, he, he knew what he knew what he was doing. Nobody's that stupid. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. But boom, boom was a, was a, people don't realize was a great athlete. He played football, basketball, baseball, all through uh, grade school and high school together, we were on the same teams and the same, grew up in the same neighborhood. And then he, his junior year, he quit the other sports and wanted to just concentrate on on fighting. And uh, you know, and everybody was really supportive of him. I know my father coached him in baseball, and you'd love it once in a while. Boom, boom would he'd come from training, and he hadn't been playing uh, practicing all week, but my dad would still play him in the games because he was that good. <laughs> We're speaking with Bob Stoops. Again, his new book is No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach. And, of course, you know, with the DeBartolo and the policy connection to Youngstown, it's kind of amazing you didn't become the head coach of the 49ers. How did that never happen? Yeah, no. They, they Well, they've always had some great coaches, too. You know that through the years. Yes. They've had some of the best ones of all time. So, uh, But, yeah, you know, the, the Bartolos were always a great family friend and uh, still are to this day. And uh, there's a story in there of, my dad trying to take our whole family to the Rose Bowl my junior year, and my brother Mike is a redshirt freshman. I'm a junior playing, and he is a school teacher. He can't take everybody, but the generosity of the, the Bardlows, Eddie Jr. calls my dad, and he knew him really well and says, hey, I'm, I'm taking care of your family now going to the, going to the Rose Bowl. So Eddie, out of his generosity, every whole family got to go to the game and see it all. Yeah, it really is amazing uh, how many prominent people in the world of sports, on the sports landscape, have come out of Youngstown, Ohio. You get to Oklahoma, uh, as you said, you know, after a, a period in which the program has been down, and it's something that people in Oklahoma were not uh, were not accustomed to uh, after after the Switzer era. Um, how did you turn things around so quickly? Yeah, you know, a lot of building the player's self-esteem initially because we had a bad we had a bad self-image, you know, from all those down years, and you know, just convincing them that we're working hard enough to deserve to expect to win. You know, that coming from Florida, I think I had some credibility of what it took to win championships. And look, we're working, you know, that hard. We're we're talented enough. We we should expect to win. And uh, 
you know, and little by little it happened. And then we, you know, we completely flipped it in our second year going undefeated and winning the national championship. And, and then, you know, and then there's the consistency of it too. No one's won more games over the next 20 years from 2000 to now. We, you know, we've been the most consistent team and have had the most wins. And, and that isn't easy either. You know, then after you win so much, you have to convince some players when you recruit them now instead of just the self-image, look, you just because you show up here doesn't mean you're going to win. You know, there's a level of work and, in, 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 you know, in the way we do things that, that you've got to put in and push for if it's going to happen for you. So anyway, we, we de- detail all of that and uh, some of the other characteristics that are important. We're speaking with Bob Stoops, who spent almost two decades as the head coach in Norman of the Sooners, won a national title, won more games in that period of time than any other coach in college football. And, and whenever you're doing a job for that long, Bob, uh, the question becomes, you know, can you maintain the passion? Can you maintain uh the level of interest, um, you know, 20 years is a long time. How did you, how did, how did you stay as engaged as you were for all that time, even with all the offers to go other places and the, the close calls with, with the Ohio states and the Browns and, and Florida and so forth? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I always felt two things. My, my, I had great support from, the, uh, the president and athletic director. I had the same president all 18 years, uh, David Bourne, and then and then Joe Castiglione, the same athletic director who hired me all these years. So that was part of it, loyalty to them. We were doing great things at Oklahoma and a great fan base, sold-out stadium every game. So I, I felt a commitment to to the fan base as well to, to remain. And also my family. I had young children and it gets to a certain point where they're embedded here and, and going to school and and in the coaching world it's it's not usual that a your children have one place they call home usually you know we jump around as coaches and but this way I was able to have my children have one place where they grew up and that they call home and and uh, didn't have to have them jumping around the country you know whenever there's a big vacancy in college football even though you have a job now your name gets thrown around this week it happens to be again the auburn job so for the record what can you tell us about your interest or lack thereof in the auburn job i have no interest ever in a in a in a school that already has an established coach from the day i became a coach to now that's it's ridiculous to talk about somebody when they got a good coach who's already doing a good job. So that's that's not to be talked about with, with me anyway, with coaches. When you see all those stories, though, whenever a big job comes up, your name gets thrown out there. Does it? Uh, how do you react then? How do you, then how if, do you know I see them? <laughs> I'm, I'm just assuming you. It's hard to avoid. You think I, you think I read? The, you think I read the BS that's out there? I don't. Most of it I don't, and it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm immune to it after all these years. You know, and that brings up a point, though, Bob. I mean, in this day and age, one of the biggest things coaches will tell you that has changed over the course of the last 20 years, and I spent some time with your former coordinator, Mike Leach. This is something he talks about a lot. Social media, players having their own platforms, um, the complications that come from that. It's not just them outputting on social media, but but inputting. And letting it affect them and affect their moods. We had on 
uh, Vince Carter on the show recently, you know, who's been in the NBA for about 25 years. And he says the biggest difference is all the players care about now, the young guys he sees in the locker room is what people are saying about them on social media. And he said it leads to depression. It leads to a lack of self-esteem, self-confidence when they get criticized. As a coach, how did you deal with that with players? The fact that, you know, they're constantly on their phones and they're constantly, I'm assuming, worrying about what people are saying about them. You, you do your best to educate them that does this really matter? Some guy sitting in his underwear in his basement, what he thinks of you? And he, he's going to be haters everywhere. You know, he's you're playing at Alabama and he's an Auburn guy. Right. What do you think he's going to try and do? Destroy your confidence or beat you up? So what? I, for the life of me, I don't care. I don't understand why anybody would would read all that. You know, uh, heck, when I was a head coach in my early years at Oklahoma, I had two people go through my mail before I would ever read it, just to to throw stuff away that that's nonsense, you know, or that's just somebody wanting to you know mess with your mind or just have the gripe about something that's ridiculous, just throw it out. I, it doesn't matter to me. I don't I don't even want to see it, you know. So uh, I did. I had two people go through my mail before I ever even opened it. And uh, there are things that I needed to respond to where a kid wants an autograph. You did all that. But, you know, if this people want to throw something at you, the heck with that. I, I don't have any time for it. I, I don't understand how why people do it, but they do it. Do you see it affect players? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, it, it it can and it does, but there's no getting away from it. You're not going to take their phones from them, not if you want to recruit anybody next year. We're speaking with Bob Stoops. His new book is <laughs> No Excuses: The Making of a Head Coach, written with Joe, Gene Wojciechowski. And you did it for so long. Um, you were at Oklahoma so long. You, you could have stayed uh, as long as you wanted. Uh, and when you stepped away, a lot of people were surprised. Looking back now at that decision from a couple of years ago, how do you feel about it? I feel great about it. Um, I, what had happened is what I had hoped would happen. Lincoln would continue to push the program forward and do great things, and, and he is. Um, and my life is different, but I knew it was going to be, and it's been a hard adjustment. I don't, I don't lie about that. It's been challenging because when that's all you've done your whole life, and then you're, you know, you got a gang of guys your whole life that you're around every day, and then all of a sudden you're not. It's that's tough. And uh, but I'm adjusting, and it's been what I'd ex- expected it to be. And now I'm excited about this new opportunity with the XFL. That'll be something different, start up, and uh, I, I think it's going to be exciting, fun football to watch. And I'm looking forward to working with these with these older players and uh, that have played a lot of football that are just on the fringes of the NFL, you know, the guys right on the outside of it, but, but are still good players. What is it about the XFL opportunity that appealed to you? Yeah, just that, like I said, working with these older players, I, I believe in the leadership with Oliver Luck and Vince McMahon that we're going to put exciting, fun football out on the field to watch. Um, you know, we've got great TV contracts already in place with national broadcasts with ESPN and Fox. So it's setting up good. It's um, you know games will start in February right after the Super Bowl, ten game ten week season. So it's it's going to be exciting. College football now. Here we are in the fall of 2019. Compared to your first exposure to it as a player as a coach, going back to the late 1970s. How much has it changed? How much is it the same? Well, I think player relationships with coaches and football on the field is is still very similar you know there's more you know everybody throws the ball better and there's more wide open passing
coaching, that kind of has all evolved. And, you know, but relationships with players and the toughness of the game is still remains a major part of it. Uh, you know, the only part, the, the communication part of it is what's so different, you know, just the, you know, phones and social media and constant, Constant communication and constant contact is is different, and media coverage is nonstop. You know, so all of that you know is is different, and uh, but so much of it's you know a good part of it's still the same too. Bob Stoops's new book is No Excuses: The Making of a Head Coach, co-written with the great Gene Wojciechowski. Bob is now running the Dallas Renegades of the XFL. Which when does the first season start, Bob? This this coming uh, in February, twenty twenty. We'll start uh, the weekend after the Super Bowl. Exciting stuff, Bob. Thank you for having joined us here on the Sporting Life, Jeremy. Always good to be with you. Thank you very much. This is the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. These days, when you talk about college football and its history, and we're talking about it a lot now, the 150th anniversary season of college football, two of the names that always come up, of course, Paul Bryant and Nick Saban, who each have won six national titles. Of course, Bear Bryant won't win a seventh. He's long gone. Uh, died shortly after coaching his last game at Alabama almost 40 years ago. But Nick Saban's still very much a part of the conversation. And those two coaches are the subject of a new book by our old friend, the very gifted writer, Lars Anderson. His newest is Chasing the Bear, How Bear Bryant and Nick Saban Made Alabama the Greatest College Football Program of All Time. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, he's a frequent guest on Feinbaum, of course, as well, the one and only Lars Anderson. Lars, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, it's so good to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Lars, uh, you know, it seems like this is obviously a natural fit for you. Uh, you've written so much about Alabama in the last several decades, so much about the college game in general. Um, how did you decide to, to, um, to write this book in this way, comparing and contrasting, emphasizing the similarities between arguably the two greatest college football coaches of all time? 2007, Nick Saban arrived in Alabama, and I had moved to Alabama from New York City, where I'd lived for 15 years, uh, shortly before Saban. And I covered college football for Sports Illustrated, among other sports, and I wrote several stories on Nick, uh, including cover stories. I wrote a book called The Storm in the Tide about the impact of the tornado that ripped through Tuscaloosa in April 2011 and, and the impact that had on, on the town the team, and especially Saban. And so as Nick was getting closer to winning his sixth national championship and tying Bear Bryant, the, I really became interested in perhaps pursuing a, a dual biography of the two coaches. And what I do is try to present it in a way where they're side by side. Uh, the, the connective tissue, the connective DNA between the two really is, is Bear Bryant's grandson, great-grandson, uh, Paul Tyson, who uh, Nick recruited and and is now on the team, and that is sort of the opening scene of of uh, the opening scene of the book is is the the grandson of Bear Bryant and the funeral procession of 300 cars going from Tuscaloosa to Elmwood Cemetery in Birmingham, and then getting all the way to sort of Paul Tyson stepping on campus. But from there, I examine. Uh, Bear Bryant, as he is in his car, in his Cadillac, with his wife at his side, 
his dog in the back seat and his young son in the back seat rolling into Tuscaloosa in 1958 and trying to capture in real time his hopes and fears and dreams and what his plans are for building Alabama into a winner. Next chapter begins with Nick Saban in the back of a private jet with Alabama Athletic Director Mal Moore leaving South Florida. Some Dolphins fans would say fleeing South Florida, but, but leaving South Florida on the back of the jet, in the back of the jet, and, 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 and creating again in real time what Saban's hopes and dreams and fears were and how he was going to rebuild Alabama. And from there, the narrative toggles back and forth between uh, Bryant trying to build a winner, Saban trying to build a winner, Bryant winning his first national championship, Saban winning his first national championship at Alabama. And by putting them side by side, you, you really see the, the similarities between the two, and then they're much more profound in the differences. Their personalities are totally different, but uh, the, the similarities are so striking. They both grew up in rural areas, both knew the value of hard work from a very young age. Paul Bryant, uh, he tended mules at his farm, tended to the mules at his farm, getting up about 3.30 in the morning, make sure the mules and the, and the other animals had had water and food for the day. And by the time he would get to school, he would just be covered in dirt and sweaty. And by his own admission, he didn't smell well. The other kids made fun of him and that he developed a deep inferiority complex. And he was able to sort of extinguish that feeling once he stepped onto the football field because he was so much bigger than everyone else. And for say, and he used football as a means to improve his own life. And that would be a scene that he would uh, he would share with recruits when he would b- bring them into Tuscaloosa and bring, go into their homes. And he was able to relate to recruits on, and, and their families at a very sort of basic, uh, profound level. And Saban grew up in rural West Virginia uh, at age 11 or 12, began working at his dad's service station, pumping gas, doing grease jobs, cleaning windshields. And his dad just demanded that everything be done to a, quote, standard of excellence. And that meant all the windshields, when by the time that he was done washing those windshields, every, every, every millimeter of that windshield had to be free of debris and any sort of, any sort of uh, clutter on, on that windshield. And today you hear Saban use that phrase, standard of excellence, more than any other. And he, he repeats words that he learned from his father. Uh, and, both, and both Saban and Bryant, they both lost their dads at age 46. And I think that infused in both of them a sort of sense of urgency to get things done in their life at a relatively young age. It, it made them very driven because they knew from a very young age just how vulnerable and fragile, fragile life is. And, you know, both of them, the, the, the shadow of their fathers is still with them very much. And especially with Nick, whenever he talks about his dad in a, in a press conference or to a reporter, you really should pay attention because he is saying something very profound usually. We're speaking with Lars Anderson about his new book, Chasing the Bear, How Bear Bryant Nick Saban Made Alabama the Greatest College Football Program of All Time. But as you were just hearing, it's also a book really about these two remarkable men who made such huge uh, impressions upon uh, college football, the history of the game, each having won six national titles and counting for Nick Saban. Um, but you mentioned how different their personalities are, Lars, because when I think of the two, I never knew Bear Bryant. But of course, um, like everyone else who follows sports, I grew up hearing stories about him. Um, 
and the larger than life uh personality the um the way that people cowered in his presence nick saban a, a different physical presence a different kind of personality i wouldn't necessarily think of them as you said uh they are dissimilar in that respect as big as bryant's personality was how do you describe the more technocratic saban I think, Nick, he comes off as distant and often disinterested in social settings. You know, he, he'll be looking at his watch. He'll be sitting down. He'll be tapping his right foot, looking like a man who has places to go and, and people to meet. And he's not great in in, in group dynamics. You know, he's not great at making those interpersonal connections. And, and whereas Bryant... You know, he, and I got this from Bruce Arians, the head coach of Tampa Bay, who I, I wrote a book with. Arians, he was, and Bruce was on Brian's final staff at Alabama. And, and, and BA always marveled that, that Bryant knew the biography of, of everyone in the building, from the secretaries to the people cutting the grass. And if someone was having a bad day, he would go and he would just have those magic words to brighten their day. And by the way, speaking of a, of a towering presence, uh, it's been written many times that John F. Kennedy, when he met Bryant, he was one of the few times in his life that he was actually nervous before meeting a person. Uh, but with with, uh, with Saban, you know, in talking to assistants who have worked for him before, Jim McElwain comes to mind. Jim was his offensive coordinator for several seasons and uh, went on to become the coach at Florida. And McElwain said in all of his time with Coach Saban, they only had one conversation that wasn't about football. So with Saban, it's all about business. You know, his days are so structured. Every minute of every hour is planned. Uh, he is by far the most prepared person, not just coach, but prepared person I've ever met in my life. Very few things surprise him. You know, I don't think he was surprised at what happened in the national championship game against Clemson. I think that's why you saw him on the sideline being being somewhat uh, looking accepting of it. It was as if he saw this freight train coming at him, and, and he had sort of spoken in metaphor about the problems that that team last year was having. And so, uh, but when Saban goes into a, what makes Saban, what distinguishes him as a recruiter is he is able to make connections with the family because he is so prepared. Alabama does what's called a, a seven deep dive on every, every pr prospective recruit. And it's almost, and that means that they talk to sort of every key person who touches that recruits life before Saban walks into the living room. So they'll have prepared a, an FBI like dossier on that kid and, and, and on the family and, and say, if the, if the mother is an interior designer, Saban will brush up on interior design and comment with the intelligence on, on the curtain rods. You know, it, it's really stunning uh, the the vastness of Alabama's recruiting operation and the amount of uh, almost intelligence that they gather before they actually make the, the visit. And it's so impressive. And Saban and, and Bryant, I think, had that unique ability to make young kids feel like they're the most important person in the world in that moment when they are giving them the recruiting pitch. Lars, um, in the interest of full disclosure, you you might be a little biased here, you know, in, in terms of your Alabama connections. Is that fair to say? 
I am. I, I am. I, I, I fully admit, and I, I try to I make people aware of this. I'm not hiding the fact that I am on faculty at Alabama. <laughs> Alabama pays me a check every every month. Uh, it should be noted, however, I grew up in Nebraska, and the reason I ended up in Alabama was because I followed a girl uh, out of New York City. That was about the only way I was going to leave New York City, but it, but it, it's worked out wonderfully for me personally. When you say um, declaratively, Alabama is the greatest college football program of all time. Um, is it something you you even have to like in your own mind carefully consider? Way you know there is that place in South Bend, Indiana. You know we all know of. Um, you know there there's Columbus, Ohio, and there's there's Southern California. There's Norman, Oklahoma. Is is it even? debatable is it prov- uh, provocative or is it simply in your mind something like no doubt i think it's provocative and it's it, it's it's definitely subject to a, a barroom debate but i i think you have ample facts on your side if, if you're arguing alabama which is what i do in, in the book it's in terms of national championships one and i think just on on impact on on all of college football and the landscape of college football I think if you just go over the last 75 years, what's been the most talked about program in college football, I would argue it's Alabama over Notre Dame. I would say Notre Dame is probably second. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly subject to debate. And, and you know, you can, in the, in the same de- you can have the same barroom debate as who, who's a greater coach, Bryant or Saban. And depending on which facts you want to present, you could argue, you could, you could argue successfully sort of either one. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a declarative answer in, in the book. I think if, if Saban can win that seventh national championship, I think the arguments would be more compelling for Saban over Bryant. Um, and, it, and another interesting question is, you know, just in terms of will, who will Alabama fans revere more? 50 years from now, will it be Bryant or Saban? And my gut tells me it's probably going to be Bryant just because uh, he was, he was in Alabama longer and, uh, and, and just again, had a unique way of connecting with the fan base. We're speaking with Lars Anderson about his new book, Chasing the Bear, how Bear Bryant, Nick Saban made Alabama the greatest college football program of all time. And I was thinking about Bear versus Saban, um, the legacies, um, the way that people kind of cherish them. And, and and I was just going to offer up an observation, Lars, and get your thoughts. It seems in this day and age, 2019, in the age of every game being on TV and every press conference being covered to a fairly well and everything, every move that somebody like, like Saban makes being covered, it's impossible to be as big, to be as mythic to be as big a legend in the age of constant exposure and that no matter what Nick Saban does, you can never approach that kind of Hollywood John Wayne, um, the scarcity factor of, of, of Bryant's era and what it was to be um, a heroic figure in those days compared to now that, that the constant exposure um equates almost to kind of a smallness now. And Nick Saban's not small, but compared to what what those guys were, a Rockney or a Bryant, you know, the other names that get thrown around, 
Can any can anybody live up in this day and age with the scrutiny and the attention and and everything that I was just mentioning to a Bear Bryant type figure? No, it, it it was really no, absolutely not. And it was so interesting in really delving into the Bryant portion of this book. With Bear Bryant, the facts don't sit still because there's so much mythology wrapped around him. And I was reminded, the first book I wrote with uh, your former colleague at ESPN, Chad Millman, uh, Chad and I wrote a book called Pickup Artist, and uh, we were talking about a dunk by Earl Manigault, right, a New York City street legend. And we quote this guy saying, it was the best dunk, and the dunk occurred up at, uh, at Rucker Park in, in, in Harlem, and we quote this guy saying, it was the best dunk I ever saw. And I was in Philadelphia at the time. Right, right. So and that's the way it is with Bear Bryant. Everybody has their own version of Bear Bryant and their own stories. And they'll tell you that they were his top confidant. And it's just, it's so hard to weed through the, the mythology of, and, and I think Bear even contributed to it himself by sort of inflating some stories, even in his own biography with uh, John Underwood, who I have so much respect for, a uh, former Sports Illustrated writer, that he, who he, Underwood and Bryant collaborated on a series of stories in Sports Illustrated, and then Underwood wrote his, uh, wrote his book. And it, it's just hard to wade through everything. And, and what you do as a reporter, Jeremy, as you know, you just you're almost like a juror at a, on tri- at a trial, and you just weigh the preponderance of evidence, and you go with what you think is right. But it, it's hard to cut through that. But I, I but but so Bryant, you know, he, he's just he it's he, he is he's in our imagination as that as as the sort of figure that made John F. Kennedy nervous in the Oval Office, you know, uh, out in out in California hanging out uh, with 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 John Wayne. And uh, with with Saban now that you know with coach everything in general, uh, given the proliferation of of media and social media, it's just hard to be mythic. It's hard to be larger than life because everything uh, the media coverage it sort of brings it it, it humanizes uh, everyone, and you know everyone's faults are are exposed everyone's weaknesses and frailties are, are exposed in a way that they weren't when when bryant was coaching you know bryant uh liked to have a good time it's no secret and he, and, and he drank too much at times and, and that really wasn't reported because he was buddy buddy with the reporters when he unveiled uh and and, and kept in secrecy uh, the wishbone offense that he unveiled in 1971 against USC in the season opener, uh, a reporter from the Tuscaloosa News found out about it and was thinking about writing about it, and Bryant called him into his office and put his arm around him and said, you know, we're all on the same team, and, and that reporter didn't write about it. you know. And today that would have been tweeted out in a heartbeat without a second thought. So it's just different times we live in. Lars Anderson's new book is Chasing the Bear, How Bear Bryant and Nick Saban Made Alabama the Greatest College Football Program of All Time. Lars, we hope you sell a lot of books, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, me too. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Lars Anderson. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.